0: This is History 605, where we talk about everything from crazy horse to cyberspace. I'm state historian Dr. Ben Jones from the South Dakota State Historical Society. All right, Uh, we are here today with Andrew Eisenberg, the author of of the book, The Destruction of the Bison. Andrew is the Hall Distinguished Professor of History at the University of Kansas and he specializes in a field of history known as environmental history. Uh, The bison is the iconic animal of the Great Plains, certainly dependent upon by American Indians for centuries. And while the bison may have numbered as high as 30 million in 1800, fewer than 1,000 existed a century later. Uh, What happened to them? Well, it's complicated, and today Drew Eisenberg shares with us his research in his published book called The Destruction of the Bison, an Environmental History 1750-1920, to 1920, published by Cambridge University Press. And it was re-released uh, recently. And so, Andrew, I was wondering if you would give us just a brief introduction.
1: It began as my doctoral dissertation at Northwestern University. I had initially gone to Northwestern intending to be an early American historian. I was going to write about the 17th or 18th century, and I was going to write about the encounter, uh, you know, somewhere on the Atlantic coast or near there between English settlers and Native Americans. And at the time I went to graduate school, I didn't yet know that the field of environmental history existed as a discrete field. I had read some environmental history as an undergraduate, and I'd been drawn to it. I'd liked it, but I didn't realize that it had started to coalesce in the 1980s as a field. Um, But there was an environmental historian, Arthur McAvoy, on the faculty at Northwestern, and I became very intrigued with it. And at that point, you know, in my second year of graduate school, I needed to formulate an idea for a dissertation. And literally, in the wee hours of the morning, as I was grading handwritten midterm exams for the U.S. History Survey course where I was the teaching assistant, the idea of writing a dissertation about the bison came to me. And at that point, I didn't have a thesis. What I had was a historical question. And it's the question that you laid out in your introduction. Mm -hmm. There were 30 million or so bison in uh, 1800. I didn't know the exact number at that point but I knew there were very few. It turned out fewer than a thousand by the end of the century. Mm -hmm. And how did we get from point A to point B? So I had a built-in historical question and I didn't yet know the answer, but I knew that I had a really good question to work with. And the answer that I came up with in many ways went back to what I intended to go to graduate school to do. The book, The Destruction of the Bison is really a story of the encounter between white Americans and indigenous people in the Great Plains. And in a lot of ways, bison is a casualty of that encounter. That the encounter created, I argue in the book, bison hunters on both sides, that the uh, horse-mounted largely nomadic indigenous hunters of the Great Plains only became that when the horse was introduced to the Americas or reintroduced to the Americas uh, by European colonists. And on the other side of the encounter, there are white hide hunters who are created in many ways um, by that encounter as well. And as their hunting of the bison evolves, they are hunting the bison in order to deny its use to Native Americans.
0: You mentioned the horse. As I was reading the book, that's the thing that fuels all of this in so many ways isn't there? It's certainly a part of that uh, change over time that occurs that when these tribes get access to horses it changes the very nature of their society I was wondering if you could go into a little bit about those societies that go from a, st- a static agriculture based to nomadic based and then how that changes their culture for their tribe mm-hmm.
1: One of the things that really intrigued me about this history, and I spend most of the you know, the first half of the book discussing this, is that a lot of the native groups that we think of as, as you know, the archetypical Plains Indian groups, you know, as, as it's called, you know, the, the Lakota, or the Sioux, uh, the Cheyenne, the Comanche, uh, that these groups had not even primarily inhabited the great plains before the introduction of the horse almost all of the groups that we know as you know the plains indians had inhabited the fringes of the great plains and it's with the arrival of the horse in north america that they began to over a couple of generations make a shift to becoming full-time inhabitants of the great plains and uh, horse-mounted societies and making their subsistence largely dependent on the bison so before the horse made its way into the great plains these groups had as i said existed on the fringes of the plains and they made seasonal trips into the great plains to hunt bison from foot and they came across the horse not as it's sometimes said by capturing wild horses that had escaped uh, from the, the spaniards to the south but in fact, because the Spanish had brought horses up to New Mexico in the in the, the 16th and 17th centuries, and when the Pueblo natives revolted against the Spanish in 1680 and took control of those horses, that started an intertribal trade in horses, and horses percolated up all the way into the Northern Great Plains by the middle of the 18th century. So they acquired it via intertribal trade.
0: Mm-hmm. And how much... T- Debate might a, a tribe like the Comanche or the Cheyenne have about whether they should take on the, the horse into their lifestyle, or was that just something that neighbors were doing? Because there are tribes that do, do not take on the horse. And, and, and that's exactly land. right. And so, how that's do you exactly compare, right. say, the Mandan to the Lakota in that regard,
1: or say the Pawnee, who who
0: famously do
1: they 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 acquire horses, as do the Mandan, but they don't give up their villages in river valleys in the Great Plains where they're planting corn, and beans, and squash, and sunflowers. They just combine the horse and now hunting bison from horseback with uh, those agricultural villages, whereas other groups such as the Cheyenne or the Lakota had been uh, agricultural societies and gave that up. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's clear that this is not a transformation that happens right away. It happens over a couple of generations. And embedded in the folk tales of some of these groups, you can clearly see that this was not an easy transformation to make. I mean, the reason why these groups had combined hunting with agriculture is that that provides more subsistence security. So giving up those sedentary villages is a big step to make. And it's pretty clear that, that what makes a lot of these groups turn the corner is that it's not only horses that percolate up into the Great Plains from Mexico in the 18th century, but also smallpox percolates up into the Great Plains from Mexico. And there's a devastating mm-hmm. smallpox epidemic in the 1780s. And actually, until the 1780s, both the Cheyenne and a couple of divisions of the Lakota mm-hmm. had still been uh planting corn and beans and other things and combining that with seasonal bison hunting from horseback but smallpox thrives in among sort of dense populations that are relatively sedentary and so after that smallpox mm. epidemic those groups give up their villages and they become full-time nomadic hunters
0: okay as a way to combat the smallpox or just a combination of?
1: Yeah, I think as a, as a way to avoid living in those kinds of villages where uh-huh. it was clear that smallpox was thriving. I mean, it could not uh-huh. have escaped their attention that smallpox was affecting the Mandan and the Hidatsa uh-huh. uh, and, and other groups in the northern Great Plains that were primarily sedentary agricultural villagers. Uh, and that groups that spent most of their time dispersed into small hunting groups following the bison, we're managing to avoid smallpox.
0: Right. Another aspect that you go into is, is kind of over the long span of history and watching the environmental change, the the rainfall, the season, the uh, drought, then followed by uh, longer spans of greater than average rainfall and so forth, and the, the ability to kind of look at. Um, re- tree rings or other sources of evidence about rainfall and so forth. And this one uh, uh, bit here you have from um, 1406 to 1940, this area near Bismarck had 11 periods of low precip lasting 10 years more, and then nine wet periods lasting 10 years more. It seems to be this kind of wide swing in extremes. Uh, How would the bison kind of combat that prior to um, if you take out the hunting that might go on, how would the bison that, kind of combat that
1: extreme? Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a great question. Um, when I first started looking at this topic, when I first began my research into it, I didn't, I spent time in the Great Plains in the grasslands, but I didn't really understand how that environment worked. Mm-hmm. And I think like a lot of people, I assumed it was relatively stable within you know, certain variations. What I discovered was, you know, I think as anybody who lives in the Great Plains for any length of time knows is that the Great Plains is a is a really dynamic environment in which extremes of temperature and of precipitation are, you know, to be expected that, you know, especially in terms of precipitation. There are wet years when parts of the Great Plains look like Iowa, and then there are other years when those same areas look like New Mexico. Mm -hmm. That We can talk about in most of the Great Plains an average annual precipitation of about 20 inches, but the average doesn't really tell you very much because it really varies quite uh, dramatically. And so what this meant is that at the, at the beginning of this, you mentioned that maybe there were 30 million bison in the Great Plains at, at the most uh, in the late 18th or early 19th century, but that number wasn't stable. That the bison population was fluctuating up and down pretty dramatically, primarily in response to drought, because when drought came, it shriveled the grasses on which the bison depended, and the bison had to kind of spread out to other kinds of areas, and that upset their patterns of reproduction. So the bison population was not static, it was moving up and down. And then when you added human pressures in the 19th century, especially when a, a dry period began throughout most of the plains, I mean, in, in patchy ways, but throughout most of the plains in the 1850s or so, that's when you really started to see a, a decline in the bison's numbers.
0: Right. And and you found evidence of that based on the uh, lack of bison remains and kill sites and so forth. And,
1: and what right. The, and yeah. you can go back into the the prehistoric period and archaeologists have done uh, they've looked at these prehistoric kill sites where where hunters would drive bison off a cliff or an escarpment and there are you know accretions of bison bones going back you know, many centuries and there are long periods where there's you know very few bison bones that are being accumulated there and there are other scientists who've looked at tree ring data and they've you know, the, the width between the rings tells you how much rain there was in a particular season. And again, those studies go back many hundreds of years, and one can pretty accurately chart when and where there was uh, sufficient rainfall. And those periods when there aren't many bison at those kill sites correspond pretty well to periods when uh, there was not a lot of rainfall.
0: That number of 30 million, I was wondering if you could take, uh, you kind of compute some of that. And that, that, of course, is a high-end possibility. Um, what's the thinking that goes in, or how is the math done on computing the 30- Right.
1: Well, it's, it's a kind of seat-of-the-pants effort yeah. to do uh, some uh, estimate of what the carrying capacity of the Great Plains would be. So what I did, to be very brief about it, is I looked at the National Bison Range in uh, Montana, and what the managers of the national bison range uh, calculated the the carrying capacity of that uh, area was for bison and then i extrapolated from there to the size of the great plains and how many bison might have been in the great plains what i came up with was actually something more between 24 and 27 million Uh, there are other historians have looked at this same problem and uh, one of them tom mchugh looked at the number of bison in Yellowstone, and he you know, did a similar kind of extrapolation from the number that Yellowstone could sustain to the Great Plains. And Flores looked at the number of cattle in the Southern Plains and carrying capacity for mm-hmm. cattle. And it, because cattle and bison uh, have uh, similar kinds of needs for forage, he extrapolated from there. He came up with around 30 million. So those of us who looked at this and come up with similar kinds of numbers in this respect.
0: Yeah. Well, env- environmental history as a field is r- really intriguing. I, I wonder that you use things like tree rings and climate data and some geological formations and some archaeology and so forth to kind of see change over time. Are there things that have come along or source bases that you've used that we have not talked about uh, today?
1: I mean, I think any historian is always looking for any new kind of source base, and you know, environmental history is not unique in this respect. I think, particularly in the in the 1960s and 1970s and 1980s, you know, the, the emergence of of cultural history, um, people drawing in cognate fields like anthropology. Um, the fields in history in which we started looking at material culture and trying to uh, think about how that informs what we know about the past. I think mean, that environmental history and trying to draw in what historical ecologists have said about environments is just part of that broader effort on the part of professional historians in the last, gosh, you know, 50 years now right. to broaden our base so that we're not just looking at the relatively few written records that mm-hmm. we have.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was impressed and glad to see in the book your use of the um, winter counts. Uh, mm-hmm. How did you kind of... Uh, in fact, if, if I have any regrets about this book, uh-huh. you know, looking back, you know, many
1: years, I wish I'd done more with okay. the winter count. Right. I, I, I really wish that I had Delved into them and really drawn out some of the really interesting uh, sort of cultural insights that come from from looking at those winter counts. Right. Um, but you know, I was this is my first book. I was relatively young when I wrote it, and yeah. sometimes you don't when you're when you're just starting out as a historian, you don't know when you have a great source in front of you. That's right. something that takes actually a couple of decades to to figure out.
0: Right. Well, I wonder for our listeners, too, if you can describe what a winner count is and how you came across the ones that you use for your book.
1: Oh, sure. Um, so a lot of groups in the Great Plains kept a pictographic calendar of, of their own society. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what this meant is they would, um, I guess, at the end of every year, think about what the most notable event of that year was and then they would uh, create a, a kind of picture of that, what that was. And they would record these in sequence. Oftentimes they would paint them on bison robes, mm-hmm. oftentimes in a kind of spiral, starting in the beginning and then moving around. And so, you know, if there's something really notable, like a comet or an eclipse, that might be what happened that year. The years when these epidemics happened, you know, it's, it's the... That, that would be noted, and they will draw, for instance, a figure, a human figure with with spots on it. Right. Um, that indicated either smallpox or measles. The first acquisition of horses shows up in some of these. Yeah. And so different divisions of the Lakota each kept their own winter count. Right. Um, uh, the Kiowa kept a winter count. Some okay. of the Blackfoot kept winter counts. So there's, and and we can line these up, and they are. Indigenous narrative histories. Right. Uh, one has to read into them, but but you know, one has to read into any historical document. Sure. And we have a lot of these because there were some anthropologists who uh, recorded them in the you know late nineteenth and early twentieth century.
0: Right. We we have I think two or three at our museum in pier, and uh, they're fascinating just to. To take care. They,
1: they they absolutely are. I've, I've been to a couple of museums have them, and I spent a long time staring at them. Yeah, uh,
0: yeah, uh, yeah. So you can, by then, you can kind of uh, put a spot on the calendar when, say, the, the Oglala first took on horses. And I think you mentioned that uh, in your book, frankly, in uh, in the early, is it 1704 or something like that. When the Oglala yep, part. Yep. Yep. Early
1: horses. on the yeah. the groups you know, different divisions of the Lakota acquired horses. And it's, you know, by the middle of the 19th century, having horses wasn't anything significant, but you can see how early on in the 18th century, it was something really notable because a year in which they raided another group and came away with a couple of horses was something that was the notable event of the year. Whereas, again, by the early 19th century, that would have been a relatively common occurrence. Right, right.
0: Um... As far as the the hunting of the bison that um, the, the Lakota do, the Cheyenne do, and so forth, and the trade that they're engaging in with the United States in the 1840s, 1850s, I, I was fascinated by that trade going up and down the Missouri of the, the Buffalo Hides. And what were they getting from that trade? Uh, what, was, what was the coming up the river in, in, in trade with that?
1: Well, that that trade in in buffalo robes, you know, the 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 bison's winter heavy warm coat, mm-hmm. that only begins in the early eighteen thirties, because it's not until I believe eighteen thirty two that a steamboat ascends the Missouri River from St. Louis as far as the mouth of the Yellowstone River, right. and it's not until the steamboat that the bison robe trade begins because bison robes are too bulky to ship in large quantities out of the Great Plains by mm-hmm. canoe. Um, so it's, a, it's really from the early 1830s until the mid 1860s or so, a relatively brief period when these indigenous hunters are hunting bison robes and then trading them for goods from whites. And what they're getting in return are manufactured goods, um, uh, firearms, um metallic weapons uh you know knives arrowheads um they're getting woven cloth um, various kinds of uh, you know decorative items beads uh, um, uh, mirrors and they're also getting alcohol alcohol is is in many ways not just in the great plains but throughout north america a kind of driver of the fur trade you know alcohol Mm -hmm. and firearms are the two biggest items in the fur trade over a couple centuries across the entire continent. Right.
0: And that's enabled by the steamboat. It's,
1: it's, in the Great Plains, yeah. it's absolutely enabled by the steamboat. Yeah. Well, do and I, I, I should add, yeah, these sure. native hunters are killing probably for their own subsistence all the native groups in the great plains maybe 450 or 500,000 bison every year that's for their to, to have enough to eat and to create bison robes for themselves and bison mm-hmm. hides for lodging okay and they're maybe harvesting another 100,000 bison every year above that for commerce with whites okay and that's putting a dent in the bison population but It's hard to say initially that it's a perceptible dent. I think by the 1860s, it's clear to a lot of people that the number of bison are declining, not just because of this native commercial hunting, but also because of drought and Mm -hmm. the impact of overland emigrants and other things. Um, But, you know, that's that's the scale of the hunting we're talking about, sort of raising what they were already taking by about 20 percent or so. Okay,
0: I, I think. One of the most impressive things about the book is how you contextualize everything and the relationships between the climate, things like drought, the invention of the steamboat, how that impacts trade, what the indigenous people need themselves for food and shelter and tools, and then kind of this impact of of, uh, the United States and uh, the whites coming up the river or moving west and so forth, Uh, you really, kind of you really do a great job explaining the context of all this and the different pressures that uh, say today a modern you know game warden would see on any any population of animals in the in the wild it's it's really fascinating to see this across such a large span of time so i was wondering if well you...
1: it when i when i started the book i didn't realize how many factors were going to be involved um Uh, but, you know, by the time I finished it, I realized, you know, this is the largest land mammal in North America. It was the dominant animal or perhaps the most important animal in the largest biome Mm -hmm. in North America, the Great Plains. Mm -hmm. And so there's going to be more than one thing at play in nearly causing this animal to go extinct. Right. So there's bound to be a lot of factors at work.
0: Right. Well, in the re-edition of the the 20th anniversary of the book, did you you, um, come across other things that would change the nature of the book, or how did you approach the the re-edition?
1: I made a decision to leave the text more or less the way it was. I I, I updated some of the scientific nomenclature, which had changed in the 20 years. Uh, They've they've recategorized some plants and animals, so I, I updated the scientific nomenclature um, I wrote a, an, an introduction or a foreword in which I discussed the the ways in which I would have written this book differently were I to write it now. Um, I, I decided to go that route rather than try to rewrite the book. And I would say just writing that, that foreword in which I had to think about the ways I would have written it was a, a difficult enough intellectual exercise that actually – going through and rewriting it. I I would probably still be working on uh, rewriting it. It'd be the 30th anniversary (laughs) reissue if that were the case. But um, one of those things I've already mentioned, I wish I had paused and ruminated more on uh, things like the winter count and and indigenous folktales that I uncovered and try to draw out more of the native cultural context Mm -hmm. around uh, the hunting of the bison. I wish that I had taken more time to think about um, the impact of the bison trade on gender and how the native groups in the Great Plains needed a lot of laborers to process bison robes for trade. And so they actually started pressing women into service and taking women as captives in order to, you know, from other groups in order to, uh, put them to work preparing robes for trade. Okay. And I, I, I knew I was kind of on to something, but it wasn't until after the book came out that there were some, uh, some other books that were published. Uh, James Brooks's *Captives and Cousins* and Alan Galay's uh, book about uh, the Indian slave trade in in Eastern North America, right. that that I realized that that this sort of that forced labor was actually something within indigenous societies that I uh, should have thought about some more. So I wish I'd drawn that out. Okay. And um, I'll also say that at the time I sent the book to Cambridge University Press uh, in draft form, I thought I'd made some really uh, good transnational gestures you know across the border into Canada and across the border into Mexico. And I think by the standards of the late 1990s, perhaps it was adequate. Uh, within a couple of years though, transnational history had exploded. And my gestures in that direction look inadequate yeah. uh, nowadays. So I really wish I had made this more of a transnational history rather than a story about the United States Great Plains. Oh, yes, I see.
0: Yeah, the bison don't care about borders, do they? So, No, they do not. Yeah. And I think that one
1: of the reasons I fell into that is that a large part of the second half of the book is about United States policy toward indigenous people in the Great Plains. And Mm -hmm. so that sort of drew me more toward a a national story rather than a transnational one. Yes, I see.
0: Well, and you end the book talking about how the bison become the kind of move from uh, energizing or being a function of the environment to instead now they're part of the economy. And I was wondering if you could, we could just kind of end on that. how are the bison saved in the end, and, and what's their role that you that you make them out to be? Well,
1: I mean, I, I really was fortunate for that, that last part of the book in that I went to the Denver Public Library to their conservation collection and just delved into the papers of the American Bison Society, mm-hmm. which uh, was a group founded in 1905 by a lot of pretty wealthy Eastern men uh, you know, Teddy Roosevelt was the honorary president of that society, and, and Andrew Carnegie was a member. And, and these guys made it their mission to try to preserve the bison from extinction. Um, and so they, they created four or five relatively small bison preserves. That, that National Bison Range in Montana that I mentioned earlier is one of them. Mm-hmm. And they installed a few dozen bison all, on each one. Then they also sent some bison to uh, Yellowstone, um, and then they kind of said, "Okay, we're done. We've 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 done what we need to do." What they were interested in doing, in many ways, was not preserving the bison as a functioning part of the Great Plains environment, because from their point of view, the transformation of the Great Plains. From a place that had been populated by bison and by indigenous people to a place that was now populated by ranchers and farmers, white ranchers and farmers, Mm -hmm. was a good thing. They just Mm -hmm. wanted to kind of preserve a little semblance of that frontier as Mm -hmm. they saw it, so that people could go and see it and experience it. Um, And they were helped out in this. The only reason why there were bison that they could put on these preserves was Mm -hmm. that there were some ranchers in the Great Plains who rounded up some surviving uh, bison calves and raised them alongside their cattle and were selling them to zoos and to wild west shows and mm-hmm. to you know private menageries and that's the the American Bison Society bought their bison from these ranchers. Yes. So there are these ranchers interested in making a profit who are raising them as novelties. And uh, the American Bison Society kind of tapped into that. So Yes, the bison was preserved from extinction, but I think not as a functioning part of the Great Plains environment the way it had been, you know, uh, at the beginning of the 19th century, but as a, as a kind of novelty and tourist attraction.
0: Right, right. Well, in South Dakota, Custer State Park as a bison herd. Uh, the management of that herd is something that uh, the public takes great interest in and and uh, drives a lot of tourism. And,
1: to the and, United and, States, so. and you're you're correct to point that out, because because if you end the story in the 1920s, as the book does, mm-hmm. uh, or as the first edition of the book does, yes, that's where it ends with this kind of curious uh, preservation of the bison. But in the new edition, I have an afterword where I try to take the story up to the present. And, you know, the number of bison has been on the increase throughout the 20th and into the 21st century. Um, there are about 20,000 bison on public preserves, you know, state and federal preserves uh, mm-hmm. throughout the United States. Mm-hmm. There is also about 20,000 bison on Native American reservations uh, because they've been working really hard uh, to try to restore the bison, at least in those places. Right. Um, both of those numbers are dwarfed, however, by the number of bison on private ranches. I mean, there are several hundred thousand on private ranches that are just raised for meat. Mm -hmm. So the bison is one of these strange animals that, I mean, apart from having been declared by Barack Obama to be our uh, the national mammal. It's an animal that you can go see at Yellowstone or you could sometimes see in a preserve, but you can also go to the supermarket and and get a bison steak. Right um so we have a we have a, a strange way of thinking about this animal both as a as a supply of meat and as this kind of national icon at the same time. right.
0: Well, Andrew, thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Uh, I really appreciate uh, it's been it. my pleasure.
0: And uh, good luck with the reedition of the book and uh, good luck with teaching all those jayhawks. All
1: right, thank you very much. I appreciate it.
0: Well, we'd like to thank our sponsor, the South Dakota Historical Society Foundation, and our partner of the 605 podcast, South Dakota Public Broadcasting. But most importantly, we'd like to thank you, our listener to the show. If you enjoyed it, I hope you'll share on social media and tell your friends about us. Now go do some history.